Welcome to Mental Healthy, where we share the stories and expertise of professionals working diligently in the field of mental health. I'm your host today, Dr. Kenyon Knapp. I'm happy to have Dr. David Jenkins with me today. Dr. Jenkins heads up Liberty University's Addictions Counseling Program. He's had numerous national presentations and publications. Recently, some of you may have seen him on TV. He did a town hall with Eric Bowling from Fox News. And so without further ado, welcome to the program, David. Thank you. Glad to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, glad to have you here today. David specializes in addictions counseling. And as all of you listeners know, that's such a hot topic these days. There's so many people out there who you either have a loved one or someone in your family or someone you know that's either struggling with it or possibly even died from it. And so this is a very relevant topic. I know this impacts people on so many levels. I heard recently about some of the costs involved with addictions counseling. I read recently that it costs the U.S. over $700 billion a year. That's just alcohol, tobacco, and other substances. And when you total all those together, you're talking close to three quarters of a trillion dollars oh my goodness. every year. <laughs> Imagine if your femoral artery is bleeding out like that every year, year after year. And that's before the specific costs of the opioid crisis have gotten factored in. And those have gotten estimated between another 500 to $700 billion goodness. on top of that. So we're easily talking just the substances over a trillion dollars, and that's the dollar figure. That's the stuff that can be calculated. And so then behind that, if you add in behavioral addiction or process addictions, then you're talking another hundred or more, a couple of hundred billion dollars. Easily a trillion and a half dollars. And so it's taking a huge toll in the country, and some listeners might be really familiar with that, but I think a lot of people in society just may be oblivious to it, but you hear about it, but you might not realize how big it actually is. Right. What about the number of deaths? I hear numbers and it's dizzying right. to me. 70% is a figure that sort of helps define some things. Sure. A number of opioid-related deaths, those are 70% of overdose deaths. Uh -huh. So if you take all the substances, overdose deaths, 70% of those overdose deaths are opioid-related. 70% of the opioid-related deaths are related to fentanyl and other analogs of fentanyl. So one of the things that we can do, and I think our country's started doing that, is really just zoom in like a laser on the fentanyl. And so that'll cut down on the opioid-related deaths. But kind of behind that, there's this emerging methamphetamine death rate. That's actually sneaking up and coming up, and it's sort of the fourth wave of focusing in on overdose deaths. So behind that, you've got 88,000 deaths a year that are alcohol-related. So you have pretty much double the number of deaths every year related to alcohol, and you've got 10 times the number of opioid overdose deaths related to tobacco-related deaths. Think of the activation, and rightly so, that we've had over the past few years regarding the opioid deaths and then think of, okay, we've got double that every year for years in alcohol-related deaths. And we've got 10 times that many deaths every year related to tobacco-related deaths. That's sort of weird. I feel like lately in the media, 
opioids gets all the attention and and rightly so it yeah. so my question is not should we focus on our opioid related deaths less uh-huh. it's wow look at what we've not been doing with the others yeah maybe we're desensitized to the other yeah well they're legal substances okay that's true one of the patterns within when we think about addictions is that the more the perception of risk goes down, uh-huh. the more use goes up. The more use goes up, the more problems you have associated with that use. Yeah. So that's one of the concerns I have about all of this one-sided, for the most part, this one-sided focus on the legalization of marijuana and other drugs, uh-huh. is that I know we need to do some things differently, Yeah. but legalization is sort of a stamp of approval that, okay, it's not as risky. You know, it's not true. There are concerns. There are risk factors. Now, I know there's, okay, we don't want to fear monger on marijuana use, but we also want to treat it for what it is. So all those kinds of dynamics come into play at a sort of at a cultural level. I think there's some things we can just do differently, and I think part of that is just simply getting good information out there and say, look, here's what we've got. Here's what we're looking at. Yeah. Now, what do we want to do with it? Like um, good information about true, actual consequences. Of, rates of death, consequences, yeah. and I'll go ahead and say, you know, uh, benefits. Uh-huh. If there are, you know, let's play fair sure. with the information on both sides. Yeah, because there are certain medications that right. are beneficial. in Most people, yeah. like 70% of people who use opioids for pain management, don't have problems with it. Yeah. And see, we kind of lose sight of the fact that 30% of the adult population doesn't drink alcohol. 70% of those who do drink alcohol don't have problems with it. Yeah. So, you know, there's that 70% figure again. For some yeah. reason, that 70% thing hangs out there. Yeah. But you can see where, okay, look, a lot of people don't use at all. Those who do use, most don't have trouble with it. Yeah. And so we just have to keep that in view as well as, okay, when trouble does show up, though, it can cause a lot of problems. And so behind all the dollar figures and things like that, there's the incalculable costs. Yeah. How do you put a price tag on parental absenteeism? Yeah. Even when they're physically there. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. So you're yeah. saying so 70% of people don't necessarily abuse these drugs. Right. And if we were to... E- even the opioids for pain management. Yeah, so if we throw the baby out with the bathwater, per se, like with pain management, somebody may suffer unnecessarily. Right. Debated about mentioning this on today's program, Mm -hmm. but I'll go ahead since we're here. (laughs) Set the pace. I had a tooth pulled. It was Mm. a molar, and and it was a pretty big tooth. And when they pulled it, oh, my goodness, that was painful. Yeah, right. And I remember the oral surgeon prescribed me hydrocodone, an opioid. Right. And I remember getting it, and I'd— heard some of the opioid trainings and so forth and it scared the daylights out of me right and they prescribed me 12 pills okay and i took one the first night and i only took one of the 12 pills because i was so fearful of oh my goodness i'm gonna become an opioid addict or something but i took one pill and as far as i know i'm okay yeah (laughs) i think you're probably all right yeah but that i guess that illustrates your point you were saying a minute ago though about how 70% 70% of people can use it in right. properly. Right. Um, and I, I just know how much I would have well, suffered. Well, it, it highlights one of these issues because not that long ago, you might have been prescribed 30 with a refill. 
you know, so one of the things that has happened recently is that the prescribing has changed uh-huh. and has really tightened up and gotten more appropriate, you know, for short-term use in specific situations. Uh-huh. That's one kind of use of the opioids. Then you have people who are dealing with chronic pain uh-huh. that need to use the opioids regularly yeah. under you know adequate medical supervision and care yes. to walk them through that pain. Well, a lot of those people don't become addicted. They might become dependent. Yeah. Tolerance, they may need a little more sure. to get the same effect. If they stop use suddenly, they might have withdrawal. So you can have tolerance and withdrawal, which characterize dependence. Addiction, recently they've really kind of clarified this, and I think it's a very helpful clarification. Addiction is characterized by loss of control Mm -hmm. and craving. So you've got tolerance and withdrawal, but addiction includes craving and loss of control, where taking more than intended, doctor shopping, those are when you start hearing the horror stories about young people who are on sports teams having an injury or uh, dental work, wisdom teeth pulled or something yeah. like that. And just a number of factors come into play. And then you hear some of these stories of people becoming fully addicted. And then when they start getting cut off on the prescribed opioids, transition to uh, heroin mm-hmm. and other drugs. And then you know, part of the problem with the illicit ones is that there's really just no control over content and things like that. And so a number of those substances, of course, will end up being laced with fentanyl Mm -hmm. and analogs of that. That's where you've seen the increase in the overdose death rates. And when you say analog, what does that mean? Well, there's another one like here's fentanyl and then another derivative, a synthetic derivative is carfentanyl. Okay. And so that's close to like 50 times more potent than fentanyl. Okay. And fentanyl is like 100 times more potent than morphine. And so... What's happening is that's so cheap to manufacture. Yeah. A lot of it is coming from China, coming into other countries south of our border, and then it's coming in by way of our southern border. Yeah. So a few months ago, I heard this report, and it was a, just a brief blip on the news. I think I may have heard a brief blip about it twice. They interdicted 55,000 pounds of fentanyl. Goodness. Two to three milligrams is a lethal dose. Wow. And so when you, you know, do the math, that one seizure of 55,000 pounds, there were enough, if you did the math, at the three milligram lethal dose, that was enough fentanyl to kill every person on the face of the earth. That's incredible. It's amazing. <laughs> and, and that's just one haul. Yeah. So think supply and think demand, and we have to have both, Yes. right? We can't just do one or the other, and we can't have supply people continuing to throw bombs at demand people and, you know, demand people doing the same thing back. It's going to take both. But that's why I think one of the strategies is really just zero in on the fentanyl. Yeah. And it's getting laced in a whole bunch of other things as well. So fentanyl can be its own substance. Yeah. You can put the fentanyl about anywhere you want to. Yeah. And so, you know, you're seeing these deaths related. And so part of why I think a percentage of those methamphetamine deaths is related to fentanyl. 
as well as the meth, but you know they're starting to lace, you know, lace it with fentanyl. So since fentanyl is so deadly and it's so powerful and concentrated, right? If you really try to attack that, you're going to save a lot of lives. Is right. the essence of it. Um, and I think as that occurs, I think it will engender some hope mm-hmm. that okay, look, this is an overwhelming challenge, but it's doable. Yeah. And we're already starting to see some progress. Death rates are starting to drop in some states and some areas it's dropped significantly. Some places it's remaining about the same, maybe just a tad of a rise. But overall, opioid overdose death rates have gone down. That's a, that's wonderful. So it's it so it's going the right direction. Yeah. The number of inappropriate prescriptions has dropped way off. I mean, there's a trend line that heads down pretty steeply because they're starting to do prescription drug monitoring programs and things like that. They're really requiring prescribers to track, you know, how they're using it. That sounds strategic as well. I'm not sure if it was hearing it from you or from some other speaker Mm -hmm. that a lot of people who get addicted to opioids start out getting addicted through legally prescribed, but but a high percentage at least. I know the other, when you look at that type of statistic from the other direction, you'll get upwards of like 80% of people on heroin say that they first got to heroin by way of prescribed opioids. Now, it may not have been their prescription. Yeah. In other words, it could have been they were taking someone else's yeah. prescribed medications. Yeah. So, I mean, we know that most people who have progressed to heroin got there through the door of prescription opioids. Hmm. Wow. That's sobering to think about how one substance can lead to so many other problems. Let me expand out a little bit in this conversation. You head up an addictions counseling program, and some listeners may be really familiar with that, others may not. And thus far, we've talked a lot about opioids and so forth. But what other types of addictions? I mean, like I know you hear about alcohol or stuff like that, but when you're the head of an addictions program like this, what other addictions do you sort of teach about or deal with? Right. Well, think of addiction as a process. In the background, people can get to addiction a number of different ways. And so there are a number of different models out there for describing the addictive process and how that happens. I've just used over the years a four-stage model. And every year or two, I go into the literature. I try to stay current on Mm -hmm. how are people conceptualizing addiction and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And people just have various stage models, but they're all talking about the same thing. How do people sure. get there? Yeah. So there's a common process of addiction that people go through. As people are going through that addictive process, it's really helpful to think in terms of biological, psychological, sociological, and spiritual dimensions. Mm-hmm. Each of those four dimensions is important to consider in a holistic way, but each individual may have unique contributing factors in each of those dimensions. Someone may have biological predispositions and Mm -hmm. factors that make it more likely they're going to progress forward to addiction. Someone else may have more sociological, perhaps family, not just genetic, but systemic family patterns and relational patterns that get them there. Maybe it's in their environment, per se. Right. So spiritual factors as well. So I try to keep a holistic view of things that way. How is the profession? I tend to be pretty tight with the use of the term addiction just because the word needs to get out, but we also don't want to over-addict 
You know, we don't we don't want mm-hmm. to over disease people. Yes. Unnecessarily and where it's not appropriate to. Yeah. So technically, substance use disorder, mild, moderate, and severe is how someone might be diagnosed with a substance use disorder. Okay. And that would be specific to certain substances. You know, cocaine, hallucinogens, inhalants, cannabis. Sure. Right. So use disorder, mild, moderate, and severe. So the diagnostic category is substance-related and addictive disorders, plural. The most recent edition of the diagnostic manual only had one behavioral addiction mm-hmm. that you could technically diagnose, and that was gambling disorder. And the reason gambling disorder made it on there and other things like sexual addiction didn't is think in terms of that bio-psycho-socio-spiritual grid. Mm-hmm. There has to be an accumulation of data and evidence and research in each of those domains, and it needs to be enough information that when you consolidate it and cook it down, Mm -hmm. does it establish that this behavior meets the standards for determining whether something's an addiction or not? I mean, people can talk about the power dynamics between various aspects of the counseling profession and have their pet theories and topics. But for me, it really just boils down to if the evidence isn't there, it can still accumulate, and one day it might get there. And an example is that just recently, the International Classification of Diseases, the 11th edition, included gaming disorder as an addictive disorder. Can I ask, when they Uh say gaming, are they referring to gambling, or do they mean like video games? Video gaming that can include risk and reward and things like that. So Uh you've got gambling disorder. Okay. And then you've got in the DSM, in the diagnostic manual, so you've got the international classification, and then you've got the DSM, yes, which is an American diagnostic manual yes. that uses similar numbers. All right. In the DSM, it's going to be, it's not official yet, but it's working its way in. I think in the next update, you'll see internet gaming disorder. Mm-hmm. So you've got substance-related and addictive disorders and you've got all your substances that Mm -hmm. can be use disorders and induced disorders. Mm -hmm. And then you've got these and related disorders that was only gambling initially, and now you're going to have included internet gaming disorder. All right, so the idea is that they are expecting more non-substance disorders that can technically be diagnosed. So you also got to think in terms of behavioral addictions. Right now, technically, gambling disorder, coming soon, coming attraction, is internet gaming disorder. Those will be the official behavioral addictions. That reminds me, in the draft versions they had of the DSM before they finalized it, right. hypersexuality disorder right. was... was Hadn't a, made it in there yet. No, and of course, that's been debated for, for right. decades, literally. Right. But I guess we're headed that way finally. Right. I've actually got an idea on this. I need to probably put it in front of the right people maybe. But I think in the meantime, there might be a way when it comes to the technical aspects of diagnosing addictive disorders. is rather than wasting too much time and energy unnecessarily on getting something its own addictive disorder label, I'm thinking some of these other areas, what if there was an addictive type specifier. So for example, self-injurious behavior. Is it an addictive type? Mm -hmm. 
and if it's an addictive type, in other words, does this self-injurious behavior also have characteristics of addiction? Mm-hmm. Well, imagine having an addictive type specifier where you can then rate that as mild, moderate, or severe. So imagine being able to do that also with hypersexual behavior. So some might be other specified impulse control disorder, state in parentheses why it's not one of the ones already listed, so you mentioned sexual, and then state whether that is addictive type or not, mild, moderate, or severe. And so I think that addictive specifier could be maybe a transitional object, mm-hmm. <laughs> might be a transition in the meantime. I would hope so because it makes It makes sense. sense. Well, it does. For the practitioners listening who've used the DSM for years, of course, they recall that for each category, there was an NOS, not otherwise right. specified. Right. And so if there was an addictions of some you know type of diagnosis in the future, maybe having an NOS could capture other things and right. maybe make some practitioners feel like their specialties right. are more included. Right. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking it, it might help, you know, with the research Uh to get some of these their own addictive disorder. So like some sexual addiction may better go under impulse control disorder. Some Mm -hmm. hypersexual behavior may better go under the sexual disorders category. Yeah. Yeah. Either way you go there, right, you could have an addictive type specifier. Some could be driven by anxiety. Some could be driven by acting out. In in other words, some can be externalizing, which would be your impulse. Some can be an internalizing type, which would Mm -hmm. go more in the sexual disorder category. That that makes sense. We'll see if the APA follows your logic. Well, (laughs) but see, I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We've got to figure all that out. That's true. Uh, The (laughs) listeners should know that Dr. Jenkins is a licensed psychologist in the state of North Carolina. Right. So he comes from a number of other perspectives in his illustrious yeah. career. Bo- bottom line, though, practically, clinically, people that are suffering and mm-hmm. people that are trying to help those who do, right, that's where that addictive process comes in. The diagnostic stuff is important. You know, it's technical. It involves health insurance and all those kinds of things. I mean, there's some important issues. But practically speaking, we really just need to help people deal with loss of control, you know, the craving involved, the tolerance involved, and the withdrawal involved so that people can start backing out of and growing through their addiction and get to the other side of this. We can do this better. Absolutely. Let me change gears on sure. here just a little bit. I know some listeners are, you know, real experts in regards to addictions work and all that, and whereas others are less so. If a person's not familiar with the addictions field, I recall when I was in grad school, I was told that, you know, oh, the addictions field is so difficult and there's a high turnover rate with those jobs and so forth. Right. What would you say to people who are maybe thinking about the addictions field or maybe right. in another aspect of the mental health profession? What are the pros and cons of working right. in the addictions field? Well, I, I mean, personally, I really think there's no other area where biological, psychological, sociological, and spiritual are so important to consider and so just kind of like in your face. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I can't think of any other area of counseling practice where you have to keep in mind the holistic view of the person. Yeah. And take all of those factors into consideration because our best evidence-based practices require us to. It's a fascinating place to do clinical work. It can be very challenging, but it can be very rewarding, especially as the field 
becomes increasingly evidence-based. Some of that, you know, it was forced to 20 or more years ago. Quite honestly, insurance companies started doing the research, reading the research that was out there that the profession should have done, Mm -hmm. where they said, wait a minute, why are we doing so many of these repeated 28-day inpatient treatment Mm -hmm. programs and these kinds of things when we're getting results that are just poor? About the, when the managed care, you were right, the whole trend right, hit. and so yes. what happened was they started getting into the research that said, "Listen, done well, you've got brief interventions that have equivalent outcomes," mm-hmm. and so they started go, "Wait a minute, what mm-hmm. are we paying all this for?" When mm-hmm. so part of what happened is the discipline had to change. Quite honestly, follow the money. Honestly, I don't care how we got there. The addiction profession, in my view, is actually a good role model, a good exemplar for Mm -hmm. a discipline that once it broke its own ice, once it shattered its own denial, it has been a good example of a sub-discipline within counseling, a specialty area within counseling that has actually become willing to be evidence-based and while it has challenged some traditional assumptions like one size fits all in terms of recovery and treatment, that's just simply never been true. And even the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous and your other 12-step groups, they even recognized that way back then. Mm-hmm. It's just what it turned into for a couple of decades was you've got to recover this way because this is the only way and this is how we did it. Yeah. Well, that's exactly opposite of what the founders. Yeah, well, you know, it, it was big business. I mean, uh, well, there you go. Yeah, Get I'm a little cynical, you know. Yeah, I yeah. mean, follow the money. Yeah, yeah. It, I hate to sound cynical, sure. but yeah, I do recall like before I was in grad school, I'd hear about people who go to the psychiatric hospital and stay for months at a time, and right. it was thousands of dollars per day. And you know that got busted a while back. And the yeah. addiction field, to its credit, you know, faced itself, took a look in the mirror, and then started seeing that. You know what? A lot of caring people do this work. Mm -hmm. And I really think part of what happened was back in the 30s when AA was developing and all these kinds of Mm -hmm. things, there was just such a great need for intervention and for care and for recovery that people just hit the ground running. What they cared about was people's lives being saved so that they could then recover. Yeah. And so that's what it was all about. And so honestly, this is really just part of growth of the field that says, listen, there's all kinds of ways that people get through this. There are all kinds of ways that people recover. And I think folks have gotten a lot less concerned about whether people recover their way or not. And they're just able to celebrate the fact that people are better and people are healed and, you know, people move on to live fantastic lives. Yeah. It's encouraging to me. I, I want to give a little shout out here to all the 12-step groups out there. Absolutely. Now, yep. they, they may not all be up on the sharpest research like you do all don't the time mean, with yeah, people yeah. and all the journals and such, but there's a huge Absolutely. listening audience out there who run um, AA groups and Absolutely. Celebrate Recovery and all these other groups around the country that right. Very helpful. Yeah. You know, absolutely encourage them. It's just alongside of the reality that most people actually recover on their own without formal intervention. However, people get free. Yes. Let's just celebrate freedom. Who cares how they get there? Yeah. See, part of the challenge is when you approach things that way, the overwhelming thing is not what do we do to help somebody? 
it's out of all of this myriad of ways that people can be helped, which one is best for this person. It's sort of an approach-approach kind of conflict, right? It's like, man, we've got so many options. You know, you help people decide based on a reasonable menu of options, which ones, which combinations, which of these is going to work best for you mm-hmm. in your current situation, your current life, which are ones that you and those who support you can get behind. And certainly for many people, it's a traditional 12-step program route. That's a good thing. See, I've heard so many people say in regards to 12-step groups that this is another definition of addiction that I've heard from people. Some people say that addictions are just mood-altering behaviors and that you can either alter your mood with a substance or you can do it in a more healthy way. And that when people switch to a 12-step group, when you're having a bad day and you're stressed out or something, you go to the 12-step group and you share and have true friendships, and then you alter your mood in a healthy mechanism, friendships. Right. Think of the self-help groups, and one of the changes that's kind of happening that I kind of appreciate is Uh that Self-help's really always been about mutual help. Uh So you're starting to hear the term mutual help groups. They're sort of one-stop shopping. There are a number of factors that go into however someone recovers. These are the things that are present in many people's lives when they do recover, however they get there. And so one of the beautiful things about the 12-step groups is it's like one-stop shopping. I mean, so many of those factors are right there in one social relationship. Uh You know, it's a beautiful thing. I have this friend who her specialty area is in food addiction. And, you know, I asked her one time, I I actually will Skype her into my classes and have her talk with them about addiction. We tend to think of food addiction as one of the behavioral addictions. But it became clear to me a couple of years ago when I had her Skyping in and I said, so what you're saying then is you don't conceptualize food addiction as a behavioral addiction you conceptualize it as a substance addiction. She said, absolutely. said, because it's sugar, the complex carbohydrates and all that. And it really helped. She summarized it like this. She said, David, people don't get addicted to healthy food. So think of relationships in life like that. Back to what you were talking about. I'm not that comfortable with the word positive addiction. Just because addiction, it covers so much. But if you can grow good behavior... If you can grow a life that is good for you, good for those around you, getting people to do those things, it's hard to do those things and at the very same time be doing things that are destructive to all of that. Those are competing things. You know, we need to address, you know, some of the problem behaviors and things like that. And some of those need to be addressed very directly. But sort of long term, you actually want to grow the good stuff. I got to ask you one more question here. I've heard so much lately about this Narcan drug and people talk about it like it's a silver bullet and people call it the Lazarus drug and all this. Tell us a little bit about Narcan because some people out here have heard of it and others don't know what it is. Well, with with the opioid overdose epidemic Uh and the number of deaths that were occurring, Narcan is a medication that immediately interrupts the lethal effects of opioid overdose. It basically kicks off the opioid molecules in the centers in the brain that are responsible for breathing and heart rate and stuff like that. It immediately kicks them off and blocks them Uh so that even though opioids remain in the system and in the body, they can't have their effect. And so people who have been on site will call it the Lazarus drug because people who 
were like at death in a very short period of time. We're talking like a minute or less. Once that Narcan is administered, it immediately kicks them off. And these people actually wake back up and, you know, they're out of that life-threatening condition. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing stuff. And one of the national leaders at the Department of Health and Human Services Partnership Center, yes, you know, she said, you got to keep them alive Mm -hmm. before you can recover. You know, dead people don't recover. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it's so it's a bottom line thing. And so in terms of responding, that Narcan is a very helpful tool. You know, there are a lot of people committed to national distribution, mm-hmm. particularly in areas where the public is involved. And I've heard that um, there's a number of places around the country, like health departments and mm-hmm. places like that, where counselors and others right. can go through some kind of a short Very training. brief, that's right, very brief training, and you can be, I don't know if there's a formal certification, but you can be approved to administer Narcan. Counselors. And it's easy and- to do. Counselors, churches, anywhere where people gather. So all the listeners, counselors, psychologists, social workers, different right. people in ministry, if they go through that training, they could then right. get the You can contact the health department. I believe you could, you know, get on the web and go to the SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA.gov website. Your tax dollars hard at work. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, and I've heard of a number of places around the country, different counties and states where the state or the county will actually right. pay for the Narcan. Right. Because it is expensive if you pay for it out of pocket. Right. That would be a neat little skill for listeners to have, to be right. able to administer that. And like you said, at least keep them alive so they can start their right. recovery. Right. Well, and that points to this whole area that is really challenging the way that a lot of people think. But medication and addiction treatment, it used to be called medication-assisted treatment, but they're trying to change the MAT, the Mm -hmm. wording of that. So it's medication for addiction treatment Mm -hmm. because we're just learning how much the brain is involved and based upon that, how helpful some very specific medications are in the treatment of not just opioid addiction but others as well. So a perfect example that many people are more comfortable with is the nicotine patch. You know, nicotine replacement therapy is an example of medication for addiction treatment. So as we're responding to this opioid crisis and the number of people that are becoming addicted through, they were taking their prescribed medications as intended, Mm -hmm. and they find themselves addicted. A number of those people can benefit from medication-assisted treatment, uh, medication for addiction treatment, that can help the brain not have the extreme ups and downs when it responds to opioids, giving the person a chance to make better recovery-oriented decisions. Mm -hmm. That sort of fits the overall theme I've been hearing from you today, is that when you help a person with addiction, you approach it in a holistic way. You, you talk right. about the brain, you talk about the social, you mentioned spiritual right. and the psychological. Well, and, and a number of states are developing peer support recovery certification so that, uh, you know, you can, even with no formal education or whatever, if you're active in recovery and um, go through some training to systematically help people in their recovery, a number of states are moving toward peer recovery support specialist uh-huh. where individuals are known to be able to come alongside of people who are working through addiction. Mm-hmm. And again, that's that's one of the unique aspects of the addiction field, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's helping set the pace for other areas of mental health care as well. 
that one thing that we've known for decades is the importance of appropriate social support. Mm-hmm. Social support is just one of those factors that just has always risen to the top in terms of being a very important variable in terms of how people recover. And who's more motivated to help a person recover but an ex-addict exactly. themselves. Yeah. Exactly. And again, part of the uniqueness of the addiction profession, even at formal licensure and certification board levels, they really do value a person's personal recovery journey mm-hmm. so that some of the educational requirements to get certified as an addiction counselor are lower than it is in other aspects of mental health care. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean it's not good care. It just means they really do honor personal recovery mm-hmm. and what went into that. And at the same time, they are standardizing requirements for those who move toward professional licensure, which requires higher levels of education and supervised experience. Which not everyone can do that. Right, exactly. But, but your typical person who's an ex-addict, that they could maybe help and be accountability or a sponsor. Right. We're in this together. Yeah. It makes me think of all the restorative justice aspects of things in society, too, and the criminal justice system and other. And so in the mental health fields, a person who's an ex-addict, they're in the 12-step movement. They might call it making amends. Yep. And they're 12-stepping. You know what I mean? They're sharing that message. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And that way they also feel valuable, like they're helping others instead of just being passive in society. So that's, that's really neat and encouraging. Right. Before we wrap it up today, I just want to end like I do with most folks and ask, is there anything I've missed asking you today? Or you walked in here and said, oh, I've got to tell them this about addictions. Or It's such a vast subject. I think we hit on a number of high points. I really do. I think one of the most important aspects is understanding how wide and varied the pathways are, not just into addiction, mm-hmm. but how wide and varied the pathways are out of addiction. Mm-hmm. And we just simply need to treat people as individuals. We need to certainly value our own journeys, but we also need to honor theirs. So I think especially the profession and people that have been in it for a while who may still be sort of hanging on to there's only one right way to do this. Mm -hmm. The best evidence we have is just saying that's just simply not true. And it doesn't mean your way is wrong. It just means it's not the only way. And even the founders of the movement said, this is the way we found. Uh If somebody else has a different way, they basically are saying, God bless you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thanks for letting us know. Yeah. But they were also committed, but this is the way we have found that we, and they use past tense actually, Mm -hmm. have recovered from this malady. So they understood that I can be recovered and still attend meetings very regularly because that's how I stay recovered. That's a good way to conceptualize it. So it's not shame-based. It's hope Exactly. Well, and you know, that fits the whole mission of this broadcast. We, our program, our podcast is called Mental Healthy. Right. And you're talking about all these different ways people can break out of addiction. And we don't want to pigeonhole people into one way. And if that doesn't work for them, for them to lose hope and think that there's no way to break out of their addiction. Hang in there. You know, I frame it as if you wanted to ride a horse and you were really committed to riding a horse, you understand that, you know, getting bucked off just comes with riding a horse. And so if you're really committed to riding that horse, what do you do? You get back on a horse and ride. And that's not a bad way to approach somebody's recovery is, look, be committed to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Enjoy the ride, mm-hmm. even when you get bucked off. That's right. There's just something mysterious about the whole thing. 
But, you know, if you get hurt, okay, let's deal with that. But let's get you back on a horse. Let's get you back on a recovery horse. That's good. That's some good words there. And you heard it straight from the cowboy right there, Dr. David <laughs> Jenkins. <laughs> and I wonder Well, think- it, at least you said cowboy rather than some other part of the horse. You know what I'm saying? That's, uh... <laughs> oh, we were tempted, but... <laughs> Oh, goodness. Well, well, thanks for being on the program today. It was was a privilege. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Mental Healthy. Please be sure to subscribe for more episodes and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. You can find this podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms. We hope you join us next time for more on Mental Healthy. Music for this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons by Excel Music Publishing at freemusicpublicdomain.com. Thank you.